You're listening to Things You Should Know, and I'm your host, Andy Ngo. In this episode, I interview firebrand conservative writer and activist Michelle Malkin. Malkin just released her new book, Open Borders Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction, which argues that internationalists, big tech, and the left are working to weaken American sovereignty and the rule of law for the cause of open borders. What is Open Borders Inc.? Open Borders Inc. is what I describe as a deep dive dossier into the funders of the global migration crisis. So who are the billionaires? Who are the philanthropists? Who are the transnational organizations and entities uh, that are creating the magnets and pull factors for people from around the world to flood our borders um, and also to enter the country legally without the consent or input of people who are living here in America already. Why was it important for you to write this book? Because people kept asking the question, and I didn't see anybody on television or in the mainstream media adequately answering the question. And I've talked about how I was frustrated over the last couple of years going on cable news and only having three and a half minutes to answer questions about the funding mechanisms and the donations and the tax subsidies that were supporting the infrastructure, especially of the the illegal alien caravans that were making headlines pretty much every summer since President Trump took office. Tell the average layperson what they need to know about the open borders movement in the United States. So for a lot of my loyal readers and viewers of my work, many of the names that are involved are very familiar to them. I've I've talked extensively about George Soros, not only on this book tour, but for years now, um, the creation of an entire network of domestic political groups, agitators, community, neighborhood organizers who have as their central mission the erasure of American sovereignty. And I've read a lot of George Soros's work. I've watched his speeches where he's very brazen and explicit that uh, he doesn't believe that sovereign nations should be the primary determiners of um, the, the course of their survival, that those decisions should be made by global elites who are perched at the United Nations, uh, in the European Union, and of course, in his um offices, whether they're in New York or Paris or London, uh, for the Open Society Foundations. And so I traced a lot of that money. That's important, but it's just one aspect of the funding of Open Borders, Inc. And perhaps the most important lesson that I deliver in Open Borders, Inc. is that people need to be held accountable for, for their own enabling and that people need to educate themselves about how they themselves might be uh, subsidizing activities with which they disagree. The billions of dollars in taxpayer subsidies that I trace were a shock to me. Um, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know how bad it was. And 
it extends from you know many of the most beloved organizations in America. Um, I'm a Catholic, and there's something called the Rice Bowl campaign every year, where you put a couple of bucks into the collection plate. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars are collected in parishes all across the country. And most people think that this money is going to help um, their neighbors, homeless veterans, um, other people who are suffering within their communities. But in fact, a lot of this money is sent overseas to subsidize the destruction of our borders. Um, it goes to support illegal alien shelters in Central America and um, across Mexico, sanctuary churches within the United States that harbor defiant deportation fugitives. And I certainly understand uh, the need to be compassionate and charitable, um, but these concepts, uh, especially when it's open-ended and when there's no sense of prioritizing um, who we deliver our charity to, uh, can be absolutely fatal to the survival of a country. And um, it was not easy to delve as deeply as I did into all of the um, sub-organizations under Pope Francis and, and the Vatican. You know, it would be much simpler, I think, to blame elites overseas rather than the people in your own backyards, bishops in um, dioceses across the country. So let's walk back a little bit. Um, there's a lot of stuff there. What I'm trying to understand right now is why is the Open Borders Project agendas so important to left-wing worldviews? Can you help explain that? Yeah. So one simple reason is the subversion of local control. And I really illuminate that in the chapter that I wrote on the refugee resettlement racket. It's the United Nations that has as its mission redistributing people from around the world into our country. And uh, the way to undermine our ability to provide input or feedback into that process is to work directly with government-subsidized nonprofits um, that unfortunately get billions of dollars um, from the federal government, i.e. American taxpayers, uh, to cut out uh, American input and simply dump hundreds of thousands of, of refugees and spread them all across the country. What does that do? Well, these communities are uh, very isolated by, by choice. Um, they, they become their own no-go zones. Uh, there's no imperative to assimilate um, in the communities where they're relocated. And then they become these very powerful voting blocks. And um, the vast majority of them um, become registered as Democrats because it is left-wing groups that resettled them there in the first place and that they have fealty to. This isn't just some sort of speculation. The proof of concept is in perhaps the most notorious refugee resettlement jurisdiction, the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And you can look at Congressional District 5, which ele Ilhan elected Ilhan Omar, um, designated by intelligence agencies in America as the terror recruiting capital of the world. And that didn't happen by accident. And I think it's important that people understand 
that they were party to it um, and that they did not have any say and that was on purpose. And again, to just come back directly to answer your question, left-wing groups see electoral gain and the solidifying of their power at the ballot box. And if you take a look at the, the two phenomenon that are the, the two agenda items that are most important to Open Borders Inc., refugee resettlement and amnestying illegal aliens, just do the math. Uh, and this is why at the very end of a section that I include at the beginning of the book um, called Open Borders Inc. by the Numbers closes with the uh, very pertinent factoid that America will become a majority-minority nation by 2045. And slowly you see the first five and then the first ten states that used to be red going from purple to blue. And I include all the target dates when the next five states are going to be turning blue. Uh, there's been a lot of um, sort of political analysis of what's happening in Texas, for example. And um, I'm happy to know that there are Republicans that think that they'll be able to hold it. But if you just look at the demographics and you look at this ineluctable thirst for a blanket pardon for the upwards of 30 million illegal aliens that are already here, since 1986 through 2001, when the terrorist attacks uh, in Pennsylvania and New York and um, D.C. occurred, there were 13 separate amnesties that followed up the 1986 amnesty. That's millions of people in the country who were not only granted protection from deportation, but work, work permits, eventual green cards, and then U.S. citizenship, which led to voter registration inevitably um, most of the people in our foreign-born population have voted Democrat. And there's another statistic that I keep repeating to people so that they can get it into their heads. Um, of the congressional districts in our nation that have above-average foreign-born population, the percent that went Democrat is 90%. So are you saying this is all about real politics, just about balancing, just a power game? So that's part of it. Um, I think, you know, for for the issues that um, you and I have in common that we cover, that um, that there there's the electoral consequences, there, there's the financial incentives that I talk about on the big business right, which is allied with the radical identity politics left on on the immigration issue. But I think in in a lot of ways too, it's just it's just the mere end of disruption. Because there's there's no sense of, of control in any of these sanctuary jurisdictions. It's um, selectivity in when they decide that they're going to enforce immigration law or not. There's no um, consistent adherence to the laws on our books, which is perfectly in keeping with you know leftist ideology, cultural Marxism, destroying the the concept of a, a common tongue, a common identity, a common history. So a lot of what we see in academia that you know that you experienced personally, and so did I, but also in a lot of the work that we cover, whether it's talking about uh, the manufacturing of, of hoax crimes and who that benefits, for example, it's the same thing here. If you obliterate the difference between um, people who came here legally and illegally, if you rob um, critics and authors and journalists of the ability to accurately describe a situation, it's this perpetual recipe for 
um, cultural chaos and for um, for hindering, you know, this 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 crucial um, this crucial function of of communicating the truth of a situation. And if we can't get a handle on the policy debate about immigration because it's completely hijacked by social justice warriors who accuse um, any rational critic of, of our immigration policies of being a xenophobe or a hater or a racist, you can see how that meshes with sort of the, the larger purpose of the left to delegitimize uh, their opponents and to to weaponize a number of things. And one is virtue signaling, I think. And, uh, you know, we talked about this idea of... Um, what battles are left to fight? What what demons are out there left to fight? Well, if if everybody who criticizes um, our lax immigration enforcement is akin to a Klansman from 1950, then you know we there, there's a new purpose of eradicating um, all of these people from the public square, let alone social media and the internet. What's has been surprising to me is seeing how. What was a fringe left-wing position of support for illegal immigration, open borders, has now become a mainstream position on the left in the United States, as well as other countries in Western Europe, and even Australia. How does this happen, and why is it happening? Oh, my. I wish that I had a psychology degree, a sociology degree, a history degree, uh, it, I can only talk from sort of the narrow lens of the last 25 years that the fringe has become the center um, on, on this position of, of open borders. Because it seems like only yesterday, i.e. Uh, less than 10 years ago, when even Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama um, would resist the, the more extreme urges. I mean, even Hillary Clinton said that at one point that she didn't support driver's licenses for uh, illegal aliens. And in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, there was a bipartisan consensus that so much of the system was out of control and overwhelmed. And I think there's the key, too, in, in helping answer uh, your previous question about why is the left so interested in, in all of this. One of the key tactics for... Um, throwing a wrench into an efficient and effective immigration enforcement system is overwhelming it by design. That's exactly what we've done by um, routinely expanding the pipelines for uh, cheap labor for foreign guest workers, whether they're at the low end of the wage scale or the high end of the wage scale. And then just keeping increasing those numbers, um, uh, in increasing backlogs for applications, um, basically forcing uh, the people who process these applications to rubber stamp them rather than to think very carefully uh, in a deliberate way about who we're letting in. And that overwhelming was a recipe for the 9-11 terrorist attacks because you had consular uh, offices overseas uh, that were overwhelmed by people applying into the country. And then this immense amount of, of um, social pressure, government pressure from other foreign governments to speed up that process because it's inconvenient to have to wait. So every cog in the machine, you know, completely overwhelmed. And that's deliberate, deliberate um, left-wing ideology. That's Cloward-Piven strategy of just overwhelming a system in order to bring it down. 
Who are some of the main actors in this Open Borders agenda? So I do name more than 400 individual organizations and entities, and it really is an A to Z compendium. Some of them are very familiar to sort of the base of my audience. Um, You're talking about George Soros? Yeah, George Soros, the American Civil Liberties Union, the Center for Popular Democracy, the Center for Constitutional Rights, the National Council of La Raza, the Council on American uh, Islamic Relations, um, Move On, um, all of the groups that sort of have evolved and coalesced now under the larger umbrella of the anti-Trump resistance. So most people who are sort of, I guess, your grassroots rank-and-file conservative voters, Tea Party people, Fox News viewers are familiar with those names enough. Um, But I'd also talk about a lot of European non-governmental organizations that have uh, mimicked the tactics of the leftist groups here because, again, they saw proof of concept and it worked. So, of course, the other most notable name is the Southern Poverty Law Center. And I tell the story uh, in the book... Um, in my chapter on them, about how I discovered how I was targeted early on by the SPLC and the same tactics that uh, people now are are suffering. How were you targeted? So uh, SPLC and the Anti-Defamation League, sort of the the precursors, the speech police that were the precursors to Media Matters, also a sort of of, uh, subsidized organization, would watch conservatives um, on Fox and tape all of their segments and then weaponize that and warp out of context uh, the things that we would say, or simply define it as hate without any proof that it was motivated by hate. Especially for me, if I go on TV, what am I talking about? I'm talking about policy. I'm criticizing policy. I'm um, criticizing media bias. I mean, there's no there's no sense of like any kind of um, racial or ethnic-based hatred other than them merely asserting that I hate you know, all the more rich because this SPLC is, is mostly, you know, lily white progressive elites and I am a little brown person. That doesn't stop them though. Uh, there was a, a time in 2007 when I was reporting extensively on multicultural curricula that had seeped down from the college level into middle school um, curriculum and, and classes in Southern California and Arizona. And I had a number of sources who were teachers in these school districts that were trying to get the word out about uh, the radicalization of um, lessons on um, Azatlan and Reconquista. So this is a, it, this is a real uh, course of studies, an ethnic studies um, courses in the UC system in Southern California, UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, UC Santa De- uh, Santa uh, Santa Cruz. Um, the idea is that the Southwest actually belongs to Mexico, and they have maps that they distribute where they redraw the borders, and it goes all the way up, you know, past Colorado into the Central Valley, and that's Mexico, and it's reclaiming that land for Azatlan, um, that is sort of the explicit goal of of, um, some of the groups like Mecha, which is the most radical of um, identity politics groups in the Latino community. They hate cops. Um, They have called for the assassination of police officers in Los Angeles. Uh, They're the ones that um, popularized the phrase that you now hear a lot of the abolish ICE and Antifa people use, chinga la migra, 
basically F the Border Patrol, you know, F F anybody who works in immigration enforcement or DHS. What does that translate to exactly? F, the chinga, F, and then la migra, which used to just refer to the Border Patrol, but now it includes ICE and anyone who works at DHS. So that's, you know, that's from, this is 12 years ago that I was writing about this. And the ADL um, and SPLC put out this video on YouTube. And remember, you're like too young to remember this. But in 2007, there were hardly any videos on YouTube. I mean, YouTube was a year old, you know, so it was very notable that uh, somebody was sort of high tech enough to cobble this um, compilation reel of quotes and uh I was included in a compilation reel with Bill O'Reilly, uh, somebody who was a spokesman for the Federation um, for American Immigration Reform, which the SPLC had uh, designated as one of its first hate groups. Um, Pat Buchanan, uh, Tom Tancredo, who was a congressman from Colorado who headed the House Immigration Reform Caucus. Um, and it, the whole theme was that anybody who criticized illegal immigration from Mexico was a bigot who hated Mexicans. And so um, the ADL uh, said, said, that they, said that these words, and they had compiled a list basically of hate words, were indications that, uh, that the speakers were part of some larger, darker conspiracy to deprive brown people of their rights. And you can see that from, you know, 2007 until 2019, that these tactics spread to the mainstream media. I mean, I mentioned about how the Associated Press, not long after that video appeared, um, had had a debate and then issued a memo to its editors and writers telling them not to use the phrase illegal alien, even though it's embedded in U.S. law. Um, and then you see that they uh, use those tactics tactics effectively by you know expanding the this huge long list encyclopedia really of people who are agents of hate, and um, then Soros subsidized a Europe a European counterpart called Hope Not Hate in London, and these people were literal book banners. Um, they went around to London bookstores and found nationalist authors that they deemed you know bigots or xenophobes or you know, you know, akin to domestic terrorists and bullied these local bookstores into yanking their books off the shelf. And now they're trying to do the same thing on, on Amazon. What's true about George Soros? What's not true about him? He's in a lot of memes and stuff. So I would think that there seems to be a lot of misconceptions about him on, on both sides. And I, he's named so much and blamed so much for things that sometimes now I find myself kind of tuning out when his name is dropped. And I wonder if I should be recognizing his role in, yeah. in this all. So can you please? Yeah, this? no, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. And he, he definitely bears a huge um, amount of blame for the immigration paralysis that we do have. Uh, this is somebody who has $25.2 billion of his net worth, $18 billion of which he has designated for left-wing causes, um, most of which support the open borders agenda. And that's going to be his legacy. I mean, he's, I think he's 81 now. You know, he's got a son, Jonathan Soros, who um, has helped uh, form a number of these anti-Trump groups, which are 
uh, rabble rousing on the streets, uh, literally Ben the Ark is one of those groups, um, and uh, is able to summon thousands of people at a time uh, to react very quickly to breaking news when Trump announced his travel ban um, targeting security, national security, um, countries of national security concern, let's put it that way. And yes, many of them are Muslim. Yes, failing states is a good way to put it as well. Um, Bend the Ark, Make the Road New York, which is another source organization, uh, turned out um, enough people to block traffic and, and overwhelm air, airports in New York and that LA happened in Portland and, as well. and Portland. It's, and it's like, where did these people come from? Well, they changed their names, but they're the same people who were agitating against the Iraq war during the Bush years. They're the same people who made up uh, the Occupy movement um, under the Obama years. And, uh, you know, that's a professional force. I would say that the, the main misconception, though, is that it's, um, <laughs> that it's only George Soros that is to blame. And that's another key message of the book, which is that there are plenty of enablers in the uh, Beltway GOP uh, who've colluded um, either, you know, directly or indirectly with George Soros subsidized or tied organizations to achieve the same goal, um, you know, for, for different reasons, but ultimately the same goal, which is to never finish building the wall, never finish building a biometric entry exit database that would pinpoint visa overstayers um, and to continually expand the number of uh, foreign guest workers and refugee um, resettlement beneficiaries to uh, constantly extend temporary protected status. This is a, you know, a program that both big business and the Soros types together um, never want to see expire, even though it's called temporary protected status. Basically, we have this humanitarian program that allows hundreds of thousands of people to stay in the country, even if they are here illegally. If some natural disaster or political turmoil befalls their home country, well, when, right, Haiti, Venezuela now, uh, and you know, it's not the left that's clamoring for um, expanding TPS to Venezuelans. It's um, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott who are uh, um, sponsoring that uh, that legislation. Um, and we've been extending TPS to El Salvadorans and Nicaraguans for almost twenty five years now for earthquakes that happened. <laughs> back before i mean you were even born probably um at some point conditions change such that temporary protected status should be revoked and people should go home but it doesn't serve the interest of either the democrat party or the u.s chamber of commerce to have america actually be serious about detaining and deporting people who don't belong here anymore with the release of your book you've also gone on a series of tour stops at various ICE facilities across the United States. One of the places you went to was in, is it Montgomery County mm-hmm. yeah. in Maryland? Mm-hmm. Why did you go there and why why is that particular county also really important in kind of understanding the consequences of the political and social consequences of weak um, and lax uh, border policies. Yeah, I used to live in Montgomery County. It's where both of my children were born. Uh, they were born in a town called Olney at Montgomery County General Hospital. 
I bought my first, very first home in Germantown, Maryland, which was a, uh, you know, working class to middle class neighborhood. A lot of first time homeowners, young families that uh, all wanted the, the same thing, whatever our backgrounds were, uh, a place where we could walk on the street in a stroller with our uh, newborns and toddlers and feel safe. Um, I think that's that's the American dream. And um, I had lived in other uh, cities in the county and also from the time I started blogging had given extensive coverage to the rise of a group called Casa de Maryland, which is uh, Soros-subsidized community agitators for expanding benefits for illegal aliens. That's their sole goal. At the time I was there, it was headed by a man named Thomas Perez, who later became the labor secretary under Obama and now serves as the head of the Democrat National Committee. So you can see the evolution. And, you know, we talked about the hijacking of the mainstream by the fringe. Here's this uh, Tom Perez who uh, successfully lobbied for driver's licenses for illegal aliens, in-state tuition discount for illegal aliens, um, who had joined with the big business forces on the right to pressure uh, Bush and Karl Rove uh, to grant another mass amnesty uh, to illegal aliens, and who, uh, when he served under the Obama administration, was the biggest cheerleader for the executive orders that granted 800,000 work permits and deportation shields to the so-called DREAMers. So who's shocked that every last Democratic presidential candidate now embraces the abolish ICE agenda when the chief of the DNC is uh, somebody who cut his political teeth um, on exactly that, that agenda? He doesn't want to replace ICE with anything, and neither do, do, do any of these uh, Democrat presidential candidates. The goal is obstruction. The goal is throwing a wrench into any aspect of uh, immigration enforcement. And what's happened in Montgomery County this year where there's been a series of leaks to the local press that have covered... Well, I'll, I'll let you yes. tell the story. Yes. So I went back there a couple of weeks ago uh, because over the summer, the Montgomery County Council, which is headed by an executive, Mark Elrich, endorsed by CASA Action, which is the uh, political action arm of, of CASA de Maryland, issued a, a formal... Um, order to all employees in the county forbidding them from communicating with federal immigration agents. And this was more strident than other sanctuary city yes. policies, right? How so? So it was more extreme than your run-of-the-mill plain vanilla sanctuary because it banned uh, federal ICE agents from even entering um, the county jails to conduct um, interrogations or questioning of criminal aliens that were in uh, detention. It also basically gave a heads up to any criminal alien that ICE had um, inquired about and gave them a 48-hour run notice, basically telling them, hey, took them aside, hey, you know, ICE was asking about you and we're going to be detaining you on such and such date um, and uh, here's two days extra notice for you to get out of town. This is seditious, uh, and if we are serious about the sections in our U.S. code that deal with aiding, abetting, 
sheltering and harboring illegal aliens, the entire Montgomery County Council would be uh, criminally prosecuted. That, that should be happening to more of these sanctuary anarchists. And I have said um, at every one of the ICE rallies that I've uh, helped organize, and I've done four of them so far across the country, Montgomery County was the second, that, um, you know, I, at least with Antifa, you know, they're out there on the streets. We can identify them. They're the ones that wear black masks. Uh, but it's the anarchists that are sitting on these county council boards in state legislatures, in police chief offices, and on the bench, the ones who wear black robes that are, I think, in some ways, much more of a, of a domestic threat than Antifa. At least 11 um, criminal alien rape suspects have now been um, taken into custody and charged we only know in about, one county in, in one, one ca- in, in one, one month. month one county one month that's eleven that we know of and um, from my sources that I've talked to um, in law enforcement the only reason that we know about it is twofold one because the police were so fed up with being hampered and handicapped in their ability to protect the community that they leaked it and number two that there was at least one brave willing reporter to reveal to the public the truth that the county council would rather have covered up. So um, it was a reporter named Kevin Lewis who worked for the local ABC7 affiliate, and that report was amplified on social media, and um, a lot of credit due to a local talk radio station, WMAL, in Washington, D.C. Some of the charges that these foreign national, illegal foreign nationals have been charged with are rape of children, right? Yes. So I mentioned that... These are very serious crimes. Yeah, I mentioned that I uh, lived in Germantown, and that's where I would walk my uh, baby daughter. In Germantown, at least three of the criminal alien rape suspects um, committed their crimes there, including an 11-year-old girl uh, who was allegedly gang-raped by two illegal aliens, both who had been issued final orders of removal. In other words, they had gone through the entire system. They were deemed uh, removable. They were supposed to leave and they never did. And then a 16-year-old girl in Germantown who was asleep uh, in her mobile home and was the victim of a home invasion raper. Why are the local, why are the politicians there and in other places willing to harm their own constituents, citizens who live there, um, for this political agenda? That's such a good question. They, you know, law-abiding people, peaceful people, and, of course, many of these girls who themselves live in the migrant community, it's interesting that they will, the, the local papers will never reveal what the nationality is of the victims. And I think it's only logical to infer that many of them are illegal aliens themselves, right? So the idea that you can't communicate this kind of information, um, the idea that somehow that makes the community safer (laughs) is just completely exposed by all of these statistics. But if you listen to some uh, Casa de Maryland or Soros propagandists, they say, yeah, we we need to uh, construct these walls between federal and law and state um, uh, law local and state law enforcement, because um, otherwise people won't come forward. <laughs> well, they're, they're not anyway. Um, 
And and so there's just there's just no solid metrics or or any kind of of uh, concrete proof that 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 claim is true. Why would why would elected officials endanger um, the vast majority of their constituents who are being um, victimized by all of this? They they consider them collateral damage. Um, I think a lot of them are just so ideologically and zealously blind um, that they either don't see it or. It's chilling to think of it, but that they don't care. What do Americans need to know about, like the numbers, the costs, uh, the victims? Like, do we have data? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Open Borders Inc. has a section called "By the Numbers," and I think that when we talk about immigration, that there's a lack of fluency, a lack of literacy, basically about how large the problem is. So we have a population of about three hundred twenty-five million. Uh, the figure that's often been used as uh, the estimate for how many people are here illegally is 13 million. That is a lowball figure, and it's purposely uh, depressed by um, Open Borders Inc. to downplay the the totality, the extent of the problem. And I footnote the citation for the much more accurate figure, which is upwards of 30 million. Guess what? It doesn't come from some right-wing group. Fox didn't make it up. It actually comes from Princeton University uh, researchers just two years ago who published a peer-reviewed journal article and basically noted that the, the that 13 million figure, which has been used since 2000 um, and came from a Pew Research survey, was was based on a lot of, of static presumptions. So they so they updated it to like make it more reality based. I think even that might be low especially when you look at the extent of um, the these illegal alien caravans that have come over um, and the catch and release problem people have disappeared we can't we can't know um, how many of them are just completely flying under the radar screen and then when you look at um, how many people who are here who've overstayed their visas who are here illegally that's a diff- totally different population from the people who've uh, violated our and trespassed our borders that's like 700,000 people since 2001 um, who've o- overstayed their visas and then disappeared. I mean, we've just completely lost track. Um, the last time I had reported on the number of deportation fugitives, it was 600,000. Uh, we, we have no control over the entire deportation process. I call it an abyss. Um, so then you add on top of that the fact that we do remain the most generous nation in the world when it comes to admitting people here legally. That's one million new green cards that are issued every single year. The impact on public safety we've talked about. Um, the We've talked about the financial incentives a little bit. Um, but when it comes to the, the smuggling racket from the South, that's billions of dollars that are being ge- generated for just the drug cartels alone. Um, they charge something called the derecho de piso, which is like a premium surcharge to make it fully across the, the finish line. Um, there's the billions of dollars in remittances that people who are here illegally earn illegally and then pay financial institutions like Wells Fargo or Chase Western Bank, Union. Western Union, the, the, the biggie, the big granddaddy when it comes to remittances to send it back home. Um, all that money is is going to you know prop up these foreign governments that don't re- take responsibility for taking care of their own people. They've outsourced that uh, to us, and um, many of these um, 
criminal racketeers are are making money off of it and certainly don't have any interest in um, protecting our borders. Um, you know, we haven't talked about Silicon Valley that much. Uh, and in large part, the profits that they reap from this are related to suppressing the wages of American IT workers. And that was the subject I wrote um, in a book that preceded um, Open Borders, Inc. Um, but they also have, um, they also reap political benefits from virtue signaling about their, uh, you know, their advocacy of, of illegal alien dreamers, for example. So Jeff Bezos has donated more than a million dollars to a new foundation that supports streamers and helps send them to college, for example. He doesn't have a any kind of analog for American citizens to help send them to college, which I find interesting. Um, but to the extent that that kind of virtue signaling uh, holds at bay uh, the kind of um, boycott threats or mob action against, say, Geo Group, right? You know, what is Geo Group? Geo Group is the uh, comp- private company that runs um, several ICE facilities across the country. They're but a, not a all of them. Not all of them. Uh, they run the one in Aurora, Colorado, that was targeted by Abolish ICE. That was where the flag was replaced, right? Right. In the viral video. Correct. In July, when the American flag was replaced with a, a Mexican flag and a defaced Blue, Blue Lives Matter flag. And they run uh, the one in Tacoma, Washington, which is where we are not too far from now, uh, where the uh, Antifa member attempted to firebomb the, the building with the intent of harming people. Um, and, and got killed in the process. And got killed in the process. Uh, was armed with a rifle. And armed with a rifle and had, and had been previously arrested for assaulting a police officer at the same location, right? That's a geo facility. There's a, um, in this region, the Portland ICE facility is also run by geo. Yes. And that was subject to a five-week siege in 2018. Yes. And that was where Antifa allied groups had swarmed and surrounded the building and all the exits and prevented all the people inside from leaving. And then the Portland police refused to help. Yes. And the mayor put out a statement that they were basically, these people are on their own. So they had to wait for federal DHS officers to mobilize to clear these people out just so the staff people could leave the building itself. I mean, they block off traffic, they block off the building. It was shut down for more than a week. Um, and then when the officers finally were able to push people off the property, they had to bring in gates. So it became like a fortress all the all these hundreds of demonstrators they just moved to the adjacent public property, which is a rail railroad road, and set up a camp there. Uh, I had visited both when they had sieged the building and when they made the camp. Uh, I wrote about it for the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. last year, and what was, I mean, what was so confounding to me was why the city allowed this to happen because the encampment became a biohazard, like. Um, there was drug use with needles found on the site. People were defecating, urinating in buckets. And this was in, in the middle of summer. So it was very hot. The entire um, people in that neighborhood felt terrorized. Um, they had people wearing masks who were 
patrolling the streets to keep an eye out on the police. Um, in the end, it was taxpayers who had to pay the bill for the police overtime and the cleanup. Yes. Yes, I, I remember that as well. There was a small family business. Did they have a food truck or something? Yes, right across yeah, the street. I they... remember reading that in here. Yeah. And so, you know, again, we come to this one answer, which is that the, the goal is merely disruption, that that, that is the end and that, that is the success. So what did that do? I mean, it cost all of this money. It threw a wrench into the machine and it sent a message. And this gets back to contrasting the difference between what happens to a geo group um, which is in the business of immigration enforcement, and a business like Amazon, which is you know also trying to uh, to pursue the almighty dollar, but under what constraints and under what conditions and who gets to dictate them, right? Amazon and Microsoft themselves have been targeted by to their own employees, you know, and those employees have said to them, yeah, we don't want you having contracts with DHS. We don't want you doing any sort of IT business at all with ICE. Right? They're delivering this message because if they don't comply, if they don't roll over to the social justice wing of their own employee force, hey, look at what happened to GEO. And it doesn't matter that uh, the people in the detention facility uh, were put at risk. It doesn't matter that it became a biohazard because there's this larger goal. You know, there's this larger goal of making an example of those companies. And um, now you see it with uh, these internal boycotts within the companies, and it's forcing to the, the companies to make decisions that are not in their best financial interests, right? Doing business and, and uh, you know pursuing profits is no longer the fundamental goal of a private business in America. It is bending to the will of the social justice mob. So... Um, uh, you know, we had at the geo-run um, facility in Aurora, uh, the Abolish Ice people marched to the private home of the warden. Uh, there was, uh, you know, entire phalanx of security that was involved there, and there were explicit death threats that were leveled against the, the warden on Facebook. Facebook, which has, you know, so sanctimoniously patted itself on the back for... Um, eradicating hate speech, <laughs> allowing uh, some named commenter uh, to talk about breaking the neck uh, by hanging uh, of the warden. Comment is still there. Commenter still has an account. And yet so many people who have peacefully expressed uh, their support of immigration enforcement no longer have platforms. We also, this didn't get very much media attention, but San Antonio's ICE facility was shot at. Yes. They, recently. That's right. They still haven't found um, any of the culprits. It was multiple buildings that were shot at. And I am doing an event in December there, and uh, we'll be planning the next Stand With ICE rally in front of those buildings. So I'm going to play provocateur here, devil's advocate, mm-hmm. um, because these are the... You hear these comments repeated like people want to challenge the status quo views on immigration. So mm-hmm. the first one would be that what you are advocating for is betrays what America is, which is meant to be a welcoming place for immigrants, mm-hmm. that um, it may be even be motivated by racism or animus towards people of color. Mm-hmm. These are This is what I hear every time. You hear it all the time. Yeah. What's... 
what's the best way for you or for others to respond? After all this time of, of hearing the, those criticisms, you know, it, I just, I get weary of them and um, I can laugh at them to some extent. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess I just have to lower my expectations of most of these people who debate because I'm always ready, willing and able to debate a smart person on these issues. And I simply have not found one yet. And they immediately reach for the xenophobe or racism card as I mentioned before, it doesn't matter that I'm the child of legal immigrants myself, uh, that most of the people who accuse me of racism are, you know, whiter than Chris Matthews and Casper the Friendly Ghost. Uh, and, um, you know, in terms of who we are and what America was meant to be, the the myth, the, the, the utopianists who invoke Emma Lazarus and uh, the New Colossus poem are so deluded about the reality of how our immigration system was set up by the founding fathers, how it actually ran and worked even during that golden period that they always refer to and allude to when they talk about, uh, give me your, your tired and your poor and your wretched refuge. Um, my husband's family, uh, came from Ukraine and they, uh, rode on the famous ships um, that would land at uh, Ellis Island. And my late mother-in-law's father landed. Uh, Before you actually get on the island, there was a little way station where they do the health screening for TB and such. And he passed that, but they held him aside because they looked at his um, proof of financial independence you were supposed to be able to show that you had an employer lined up and that you would not be likely to become a public charge. And I mention this because, of course, it became the subject of recent debate um, in the headlines and in Washington just a couple of weeks ago. And so after coming all this way, after showing that he was religiously persecuted because he had uh, escaped the pogroms in, in Ukraine, they sent him back because they did not believe that he had a job lined up in New York. So he rode the ship all the way back home and had to communicate with a distant relative in, in Brooklyn about lining up a job for him. He was a Talmudic scholar. Um, that was his sort of training. But he lined up a job as a butcher, <laughs> And only when he could verify that he was going to, that he had to show the, the address, what his wage was, he took a second trip all the way back to Ellis Island, and then he was finally let through. It's never been the case that we've just welcomed our arms to any willing worker and to everyone seeking refuge and sanctuary. It's never worked that way. And, it, and it, it's delusional, and it's um, historically ignorant to keep invoking um, this, the Emma Lazarus poem, when uh, time after time, from 1924 to 1965 to 1986 to 1990, we've had any number of massive omnibus immigration bills signed into law that constitute um, and dictate who we let in, how many, and what's supposed to happen if people violate our laws or we discover they're not going to be here. If you don't like that, Go change it. Go go elect enough of, of the you know members of the mob squad, whatever you call them, to change the laws. 
Um, but this is the reality that we have this immigration system. It's never been fully enforced and it's had dire consequences for the people inside our borders. Okay, next charge slash accusation. Mm -hmm. This strict uh, immigration enforcement is upholding white supremacy and uh, even anti-Semitism. Or invoking George Soros yeah. is anti-Semitic. Yeah. To me, you know, the fact that he is Jewish has no impact on my criticism of how he has spent his money and, uh, and who he is spending it on. And again, it doesn't matter. I've mentioned that my husband um, has a Jewish background, is of Jewish lineage, um, and it's it's just so tiresome. And in fact, I anticipated this very attack in the section of the book, chapter two, that I wrote on George Soros, which starts out by quoting Talia Levin uh, in the Washington Post, writing an entire piece on how criticism of Soros funding uh, inspired the Tree of Life synagogue shooter. And so ergo, any criticism of Soros uh, is tantamount to inciting the kind of violence that um, murdered innocent people at Tree of Life. And that very criticism was leveled at me two days after I launched the book. By the way, uh, and this is a, just a nice little example of, of media bias, the Washington Post had failed to put in its byline that Talia Levin, at that time that they published the article, was working for Media Matters, an organization that was subsidized with at least $1 million of Soros money. Gee, do you think there'd be a, a slight conflict of interest there that might enlighten readers? You know, democracy dies in the darkness. So does media integrity and credibility. And there was another Soros-paid hit person who well, wrote the on. whole... Yes. On, on Talia. Yes. Last year, into 2018, she had to resign in disgrace from... New Yorker magazine. Correct. She's a fact checker. What, what, what happened? So I recount that in the book as well, and I think it's very relevant. Um, she had falsely accused an ICE agent who was a military hero of having a tattoo that she claimed was some sort of white supremacy uh, symbol. She said it was an iron cross. In fact, she completely misidentified it, and she heard from many veterans who explained that the cross was the symbol of the particular unit that this man had served in. And he had lost his limbs, by the way. He, right? Yes, and he, he was, I think, at least a double amputee. And I think it's notable the line of work that he actually did, because he worked in computer forensics. One of the things that uh, the, the uh, functions that ICE serves is investigating cyber crimes and especially uh, child trafficking, um, child pornography on the internet, um, international. That was the work that he did. But somehow this guy was a KKK menace that she was going to drag through the mud. You know, he should have sued her for defamation. Uh, and instead, the New Yorker, um, in, in a cowardly manner, um, you know, had her leave her position and uh, then she immediately bounced back, as I'm, as I'm, as, as you know, Washington for the Washington Post. And then at, at one point, she had been hired to be a lecturer, I believe, at New York University, failing upward. You know, the, the rewards that... Uh, a journalism that, lecturer. Uh, yes, of all things. Uh, just 
really flabbergasting how that that all works. But I mean, after all these years, I know I shouldn't be surprised by uh, I always am. I mean, that that is not a journalist. And yet, even now, just like the SPLC is always referred to as a legitimate organization by the media, despite all of these disgraceful acts that she has engaged in of journalistic malpractice and misconduct, she will always be a member of the club. What are some possible solutions to this problem that the United States and many other countries on the world are dealing with? I'm glad that you mentioned other countries because I think in some way they offer us clues on what we should be doing. In Italy and Hungary, there have been very concerted efforts to go after Soros-tied non-governmental organizations. And they treat these agencies, which are essentially enablers of human smuggling, as criminal co-conspirators. So um, I recount in the book about um, Save the Children, you know, one of the most noble seeming of, of international charities, running boats uh, to smuggle people and, and drop them off on the southern shore of Italy. Salvini had been going after them, denying them uh, right of passage through the seas, denying them the ability to land, uh, and then trying to prosecute them criminally. In Hungary, um, under Orban, they actually passed a law called the Stop Soros Law, and they outlawed one of his universities and um, took seriously whatever is in their own um, you know, national codes on uh, prosecuting uh, people who aid and abet illegal uh, alien rings. I don't know why we're not doing that um, in America. There have been a number of, of uh, attempts to prosecute um, religious organizations that were inducing people to come across the southern border. There's a group called Deaths No More in, in Arizona. One of those trials ended in a hung jury, and uh, the prosecutors are still trying to decide whether or not to pursue it. But you can see the quandary here. Prosecutors are political animals themselves. And if, if they're perceived as, uh, as bullying or intimidating the good Samaritans, uh, then it's a lost cause for them. And um, you know they're afraid that they were, will suffer electoral consequences. In that case, I think it's important to reframe and reset the narrative and tell the truth, which is what Open Borders Inc. does. And what happens if it... A Democrat wins in 2020. <sighs> the presidency. You know, in some ways, uh, pessimists or um, realists look at the at this first term of, of President Trump's as delaying the inevitable. <laughs> you know, that the, 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 the collapse is already in the cards and uh, many of the factors that Trump is trying to turn back uh, have been in the works for so long that uh, that it really just is al- almost a matter of time before um, before this once great civilization falls. I'm not that pessimistic. I mean, if I were, I wouldn't be out here sort of beating the drum, like almost literally <laughs> tr- trying to save the republic. Um, and and you know, almost perversely, some might argue that. If the pendulum swings so far to the left and we have a Democrat president that maybe it might be more of a wake up call for people to do the kinds of things that they were not willing to do with Trump in office. Um, 
So it's hard to say, like, you know, the whole political thing, the gamesmanship and predicting things has never really been like my forte. I, I've more been about, you know, my own sort of journalistic imperative is to gather information for people and let them decide for themselves what, what they should do about it. And with regard to the Republican Party and the, the nationalist strain and the sort of um, the inter-party conflict that exists over, over those issues, I think it, it. I think it was a healthy thing that Trump um, forced that debate um, to the fore. Uh, and you know, I, you know, I'm in the nationalist wing of the the Republican Party. I always have been long before Trump realized that it was a, a winning issue um, for sure. And um, you know, if 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 there's a far left Democrat in the White House. Who's able to unify all of the, the the all of these fissuring fac factions within the Republican Party that that could be a a healthy thing. Thank you very much, Michelle. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that was Michelle Malkin, author of the new book Open Borders Inc., now available wherever books are sold. If you enjoy my work, please consider becoming a supporter through Subscribestar, Patreon, or PayPal. As an independent journalist, this work is only possible through your support. Just a few dollars a month helps me a lot. You can find the links in the description. Thank you.